If you have your Bibles, please join me in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It's on page 557 in the Pew Bible. We live in a world of uncertainty. You can turn on the news and see stories of wars and rumors of wars and other things happening in our world. We live tied to our cell phones, wondering if our phone is going to ring and the person on the other end is going to have news for us that is going to change our life forever. We live in uncertainty even as our graduates go off to college and go and enter into a new world. Who will my friends be? Where will I fit? Where will my new sense of home be? This morning, we're going to look at God's word. We're going to look at Isaiah's encounter with God. And as we look at Isaiah's encounter with God, we will be reminded about the importance of where we look. I don't know if you watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday or not. When horses run in a race, they have blinders on that keeps the horse from going ADD and allows it to focus on the goal and to focus on the prize. This morning, we're going to look at a text that's going to refocus us. It's going to refocus us as Christians on who God has called us to be and about how who God has called us to be causes us to impact the world. If you have your Bibles, um, join me in standing. So we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. God, this morning as we look at your word, God, I pray that we would help to, you would help us to frame our lives in proper perspective. And a proper perspective of the world around us, a proper perspective of you, a proper perspective of your grace, and a proper perspective of what you call us to do and who you call us to be. God, speak through your word. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can grab a seat. As the text begins, it begins with a sad moment. In the year that King Uzziah died. You see, Uzziah was a good king. The people lived in a place of peace, in a place of hope. And as the king leaves power, they are faced with uncertainty. Not uncertainty unlike many of us face in our life. And so as we look at the beginning of this passage, first we look around at the uncertainty of the world. We look around at the uncertainty of the world. Isaiah stood at a place of uncertainty. Many of us today, if we're honest, may stand at a place of uncertainty. 
wondering where is God, wondering where, what is going on, wondering what is the next step, wondering what may come around the horizon. As Isaiah saw that the king had died, he got a vision. And it was a vision that's much bigger than the here and now. It is a vision of the true king on the throne. So we look around and see the uncertainty of the world. Number two, we look up and see the king on the throne. Look up to the king on the throne. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. His gaze is immediately shifted from this world to the next. The Lord is seated upon a throne. He's high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. And above him stands the seraphim. Each has six wings. With two, he covers his face. With two, he covers his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. If we're honest, if we were walking into this picture, we would probably be afraid. We see the, ha- the temple being filled with smoke. We see this God that is described as just the fringes of his robe filling the temple. He's so big that you can't even wrap your mind around him. You see these angels with six wings covering their face and their feet and flying. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around that. When we look at this picture, we see first that the king is seated. Notice that the world may be going crazy. The world is uncertain. Things are going maybe not the way you pictured. But as we see God in this picture in heaven, God is not standing up going, man, it's really sad down there. I can't believe that happened and that happened and that happened. No, God is seated on a throne. God is in control. God is in charge. God is the one who is sovereignly reigning over everything. And so when we wonder who's going to be the next king, when we wonder what is around the corner, when we wonder what is going to happen in our lives, we look and we remember that our God is seated on a throne. He's in control. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's sovereign. He is the king who is seated on the throne. We just don't see him seated. We see that the king is worshipped. These angels that we can't really wrap our heads around say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you look at the book of Isaiah, this text was written, most scholars think, about 600 years before Jesus. Fast forward to the life of Jesus. Um, One of Jesus' disciples named John wrote a book called Revelation. And in that book, he saw a vision of the end times. He saw a vision of heaven. And what's interesting is if you track the vision of heaven and compare the vision in Revelation to the vision here, we see a similar scene. Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day by day, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. These creatures stand around praising God because he is holy. For all of eternity, God, you are holy, holy, holy. So third, we see that the king is holy. The king is holy. Holy comes from the Hebrew word kadosh that means to be set apart. When I got married, in marriage you learn a lot of things. As a guy, guys are very practical. We have things and they have a purpose and they have a point. When I got married, I learned about a whole new category of life called decorative. 
There are stores that are built to this thing, to this thing called decorative, such as Hobby Lobby. If you're a guy, chances are you've been caught in the endless maze pit, also known as Hobby Lobby. You go in there and you look at these different things and you go, what is the purpose? Liz, what is the purpose of that? It is decorative. It's in a category all its own. It has no purpose but to be decorative. Um, another thing, when we first got married, most people, when they get married, get China. China, if you're unfamiliar with it, is some fancy place that you would get that you would use today for lunch if, like, Jesus or the president were coming over to eat. (laughs) And as we think about China, China is something that is set in a special cabinet, and everybody looks at it and says, oh, how pretty. But God forbid we take that China, put our pizza on it, and put it in the microwave. That would be the end of Ben Birdsong as we know it. These are two things that are set apart. China is set apart for a special use. Decorative things are set apart in a special category. When we think about holy, God is in a category all his own. God is holy. There's no one he can be compared to. Jerry Bridges says this, to be holy is to be morally blameless. It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. This word signifies separation to God and the conduct of those being separated. A.W. Tozer, in thinking about the holiness of God, he says this, We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising that concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely better. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart. It is unique, it's unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power, admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. God lives in a category all his own. Tell our students, sometimes as Christians, we decide we want to feel better about ourselves. So in order to feel better about ourselves, we find someone worse than us. And we go, I'm not so bad because look at him. I'm not so bad because look at her. When we look at God, God is in a category all his own. And we can't even begin to compare ourselves to God. God is holy. God is perfect. God is set apart. And God is different. When we see Isaiah, he finds himself in the temple. He's looked around and saw the brokenness of the world. He's looked up and seen the king on the throne. And now he's going to look inside at our own brokenness and the brokenness of our culture. Look inside at your own brokenness and the brokenness of your culture. As Isaiah finds himself in the presence of holiness, he realizes he's the one not in the room. He's the one thing that doesn't fit in the room. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah looks, Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm lost. I can't do anything. I can't be good enough. I can't work hard enough. can't check enough boxes. I am lost. I am broken. When we catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, we catch a greater picture of the depth of our sin. Because it's easy to feel like a good person when you find somebody worse than you. It's hard to feel like a good person when you compare yourself to the perfection of God. Billy Graham said this, We cannot be satisfied with our own goodness after beholding the holiness of God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I believe that a holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains 
in him. We see brokenness. Isaiah is broken. Woe is me from a man of unclean lips. The words that come out of my mouth that are a reflection of my heart don't glorify God. And if we're honest, a lot of days that's us. But it doesn't stop there. He says, I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. The brokenness is not just in Isaiah. The brokenness is in his world. If we're awake long enough to watch the news or to think about our world around us, we realize that that is true. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. And I think a lot of times us as Christians can sit to the sideline and say, hey, we're doing okay, and that's bad, and I'm just going to stay away from that. Or I'm going to go to heaven anyway, so what happens to them? That doesn't really matter to me. As believers, we're called to impact the world. Spurgeon said this, I do not think a man can be a good missionary if he winks at the sin that surrounds him. So often that's what our culture wants us to do. Just laugh it off. Unless sin stinks in his nostrils, unless it makes his soul soul boil with a holy indignation, unless like Paul his heart is stirred in him, how can he speak as he should but speak the message of his God? We see the world around us. We see the brokenness of the world around us. And does that bother us? Does that bother us enough to not sit on the sidelines? Seniors, as you go to college, you're going to experience a broken world, maybe in a new way that you never have before. Are you going to let brokenness influence you? Are you going to be the person that stands up and says, I realize that this path is a path that's not glorifying to God? And I'm going to be the person that takes that stand. I'm going to be the person who stands out. I may be made fun of it. I may be mocked for it. I may be shoved to the side because of it. But I know that I serve a king. A king who's on a throne. A king who's sovereign. And a king who calls me to be holy. We look inside at our own brokenness and the brokenness of our culture. Next, we look at the power of grace. Look at the power of grace. Verses 6 and 7. Luckily, the story doesn't end in verse 5. Luckily, we don't all walk out of here and go, man, we're bad, God's holy, we're in trouble, woe is me. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The reason this angel can come to Isaiah and say that he is forgiven is because he knows in 600 years, God is going to send his son named Jesus. Born as a baby in a manger, who lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. Who died on the cross, the death that we deserve to die. And who rose again from the dead, proving that he was God. The reality of the gospel is that grace changes us. Isaiah and us can have our guilt taken away because of the cross. We can have our sin atoned for because of the cross. C.S. Lewis said this way, It costs God nothing, so as far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert the rebellious wills, it cost him crucifixion. Look at the power of grace. And so often in church, this is where our story stops. We've seen a great God, we've seen our sin, we've seen the power of grace, and the story stops with us. Oh, we're saved, praise the Lord. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like 
me. But graduates, church, the gospel isn't meant to stay in the walls of this church. The gospel is not meant to stay in your heart and be a relationship between you and Jesus. The gospel is meant to change the world. And the last image we see is we look out to a world that needs Jesus. We look out to a world that needs Jesus. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. You can imagine the awkwardness of this moment. Isaiah is the one person in the room that's not already completely in. He's not like the angels that are singing holy, holy, holy for all of eternity. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? You can imagine a dramatic pause. As Is this a rhetorical question or is this not a rhetorical question? Then Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. This is the call of the Christian to be sent by God. Graduates, as you go to Alabama, as you go to Auburn, as you go to Sanford, as you go to the Air Force Academy, as you go to Pratt Art Institute, as you go wherever you're going to go, you're going as people who are sent. You're not just at these schools to get good degrees and get a good job and make your life better. You're being sent out today as missionaries with the truth of who God is and what God has done in your life. Let that story be the story that you share with everyone. Let you view your transition to this next step as a call, as a call from God to go and to make an impact. Blaise Pascal said this, the serene beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world next to the power of God. Are you going to live a life that's different? Are you going to let God's power work through you? Church, when you show up at work tomorrow, are you going as people who are sent? Do you realize that you're not just there to make a paycheck? You're just not there to count your time and go home, spend time with your family. You're there to let God use you to change the world. Let the power of your testimony and the power of God use you to change the world. As Jesus gathered with his disciples before he was to ascend into heaven in Matthew 28, he left them with these words. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we conclude this morning. I want to share with you a story, a story that has great power and a story of the power of impact on someone's life. This is a story of a Baptist minister who you may have heard of. I've quoted him several times through this sermon. His name is Charles Spurgeon. And this is him writing about the power of looking and how one day when he chose to look, it changed his life. It says this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place to worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people, I don't know. I heard of the, I'd heard of the primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I didn't care how much that made my head ache. 
the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. And at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man, he was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text that he read said this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce his words right, but that didn't matter. There I was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began this way. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says to look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. A, said he, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourself. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. And then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on that cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I will rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone about that length, he managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so. He made it to the end of his message. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew that I was a stranger. As he fixed his eyes on me, as if he knew everything that was in my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I wasn't accustomed to preachers making remarks about my appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow. It struck right at home. He continued, you'll always be miserable, miserable in your life and miserable in your death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now in this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist preacher could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I don't know what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked to it and were healed. So it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but I heard that word look. What a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun. I could have risen in that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ, of the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that someone told me this before, trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith, I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love shall be my theme and shall be till I die. Look to Christ. Today, if you've never looked to Christ, look to him today. For There's hope, there's life, there's peace, there's salvation. Today, if you are a follower of Christ, 
Spurgeon showed up at a church on the day when it snows, when no one goes to church in the chapel with the guy who was not the normal person, who's probably less educated than any of us in this room. He stood up, he opened God's word and God moved through his spirit, through his word and awakened Spurgeon's heart to follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, you have this opportunity every day to grab someone around you and to point them to Christ, look to Jesus, look to hope. Graduates, as you go, who are you gonna point? Your life has an opportunity to point them to Christ. Your words have an opportunity to point them to Christ. And we can see the impact of your life not stopping in this place, but being catalyzed out of this place to change the world for him and his kingdom. It's not just a truth for graduates. That's a truth for us. Monday's coming. Look to Jesus. Grab someone around you. Show them where to look. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us to look to you to find hope, to find grace, and to find peace. God, today, for those of us in this room who do not have a relationship with you, God, today I pray that they would look to Jesus and that they would find hope there. And then for those of us in this room that already know you and are following you, God, even in this moment, bring someone's face to mind who we can come alongside this week. We can show them where to look. We know true hope and true grace comes from you. And we are blessed to be able to be a part of your work in this place and in the world. God, be with us today. Lead us, guide us, make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.